My name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Embers to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. I've found that it isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how we respond. Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. Today, I'm speaking with Elena Pastore. She is a leadership and career coach. She works with clients on leadership development, skill building, and resume writing. Elena enables clients to achieve their greatest professional leadership impact by capitalizing on accomplishments, honing strengths, and developing exceptional team cultures. She earned both her bachelor's and her master's degree in business from the University of Florida. Originally, she's from Rhode Island and currently resides in St. Pete, uh, St. Petersburg, uh, Florida, on the Gulf Coast. And uh, we're going to talk about leadership today. Um, now, one of the things that I wanted to highlight is some of her accomplishments, well, early on uh, before she graduated with her, her master's. She worked as the vice president and then later the president of the leadership development program at U of F. Uh, later after graduation, she went into, well, she started working for a startup uh, called SPECT, uh, where she worked in operations and outreach and at the same time was working for the Churchill Leadership Group, um, working uh, in coaching and marketing and uh, now she has since founded her own coaching firm, uh, Elena Torre, or Elena Torre uh, Coaching, where she is doing what I just told you. She's a leadership and career coach. I want to just really start off at the beginning. Uh, we talked a little bit uh, before uh, beginning the, the interview. Um, you were born and raised in Rhode Island. You're the oldest of, of three. And uh, I just want to get, get a feeling for your life growing up and really, uh, you know, if you wouldn't mind talking about uh, really taking on a leadership role very early on in your life. Um, so, yeah, I'll, I'll give the floor to you. Yeah, awesome. Thanks for the great introduction. Usually, you know, people don't start by asking me about the beginning. They ask me about now, and then sometimes we backtrack. So I think it's interesting to, to start at the beginning. So my, my life growing up was, you know, I lived in a pretty homogeneous community. Um, everyone was the same. And I kind of grew up in a little bit of a bubble. So I grew up in a very Catholic Italian household city. Um, state really. Rhode Island is very, very, very Italian. All my friends were at least 50% or more Italian. And I just thought that that was life. That was the world. Um, as you said, you know, in, in addition to that, 
I, I do hold my Italian heritage culture, you know, close to my heart and in everything that I, everything that I do, especially the cooking. Um, so in addition to those things, I was the old, or I am still the, the oldest of three siblings. I have a younger brother and a younger sister. Sister is, is the middle child and she won't hesitate to tell you that. But yeah, I went to Catholic school my whole life. Family was always very important. Um, I, I love where I grew up and I, I do still miss it a lot because it was very special to me. And um, my mom raised us on her own for most of my life because my dad um, passed away of a massive heart attack when I was eight. So I helped kind of raise the other two siblings a little bit since I was eight years older than the and my brother, the, the youngest. Um, and those are really the biggest things that have shaped my life into the person that I grew into and the little girl that went to college at 17 upon graduation. So that was kind of my life in a nutshell and I'm, I'm very grateful for it. What did your, what did your father do uh, for, for a living? He was a, he was a primarily a banker. He was the COO of a small bank um, in Massachusetts. And he was also a politician. He was the president of the city council where I lived in Rhode Island. And, and how about your mom? She's an optometrist. I've done a lot of interviews. I always like to get a sense of a, a person's um, foundation early on in their life. And sometimes it's more obvious than, than others, but yours, you know, having uh, a mother who, you know, at an age when you're very young and your siblings are even younger, uh, your mom is in a position where she's raising three children on her own. And this is your your role model. This is the the main influence that you have in your life. And you're, you see, you know, I'm guessing a, a pretty strong woman take, take life by the horns. And really, I, I just, I, I like stories like this, because, you know, there so many times we hear stories of, you know, tragedy that really don't, turn out like this, you know, where people give up and go a different way. And I just kudos to your mom and, and like, awesome for you too. It's a, um, pretty cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but I, I would like to ask you maybe if there's some memories early on in your life that really, you know, memories of your mother that really kind of helped shape your ideals and maybe your your leadership philosophy? It's interesting. And I've, I've actually never thought about this because usually people ask the same thing about my dad rather than my mom. And I have more distinct, I think, photographic memories of my dad because after losing him at eight, I think I, I held on to those early age things that I knew were the only things that I would have to remember for the rest of my life. So I don't have, and she's probably going to be mad at that, Matt, if she hears me say this, I don't really have specific, you know, photographic of an instant or a moment memories of my mom 
um, in that capacity, I guess. But I will say um, she made our lives as normal as they could be, despite our situation. So um, it would it would kind of make sense that, you know, she would have maybe told us we had to scale back on some activities or some extracurriculars or things that we like to do as kids sports, because, you know, when you have three kids, especially when one's an infant, it's a lot for one person to handle. Um, but I don't feel like she made us sacrifice any more than we had to by not having a dad. Our lives continued as normally as possible as if he were there within the, you know, the constraints that we had. Um, and I didn't realize how critical that was as a, I mean, as a kid, you, you can't really, you don't really understand, oh, this one person has responsibility for three kids financially, time-wise, just being spread thin. Like you don't, you don't, when you're a kid, that doesn't, you can't register that in your head. So as an adult, when I could, I was like, wow, how did she physically possibly do all that for us? Um, and so while I don't remember, you know, a specific instance of, you know, her leadership or her strength, I think just that concept to me speaks volumes about, you know, the upbringing I, I still was able and my siblings were able to have. Do you have a background in sports or anything? Did you play sports in <laughs> high school? I was a dancer and a cheerleader. So some people don't consider those sports, but um, I do. <laughs> well, the the reality is, is that well, so my daughter, she's a dancer, and especially okay. when it's a choreographed dance, uh, just like when, you know, the cheerleaders are doing a, a choreographed cheer, it's a team uh, operation, you know, you're, right. you're performing off of everybody else, and you're depending on them to deliver, and they're depending on you, so... No, it's very much the same thing, though some people might not consider it a sport. It very, it's very much a team concept. And, right. uh, and I think that those experiences help develop the mindset that is so important to leadership. And that is, it's not about you it's about the team and making sure that you're delivering everything that you can to support whatever it is that your team is trying to accomplish. So, mm -hmm. um, no, I, I, I think that that is very much exactly what, uh, uh I was going for really. Cause I, okay. I, I got the, I got the impression that you were involved in some sport type of thing. So, yeah, my siblings more so with traditional sports than, um, you know, than I was. But yeah, no, that's 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 a great analogy. She definitely, yeah, it, my mom definitely led the team, being our family in the sense of serving us well and getting us on the right path. Well, I, I was asking about the the sports though for you because you went in this direction of leadership with not only what you're doing now, but your education. And mm -hmm. what, what really inspired you to go after the degree and the, and the coursework that you did? 
I had no idea what I wanted to major in. Business sounded interesting to me. So I was undecided for my first year. I declared business, had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do, got involved in some things and stuck with the ones that I liked. And, you know, I think we're all supposed to, or we all end up where we're supposed to if we, you know, let it happen and are open to things happening. So, you know, over time, I became someone that was extreme. And I'm still very indecisive about certain things, um, you know, restaurants with intimidating menus that have 50 different options. Um, deciding what I wanted to major in being one of those things as well. Um, so that really, really heavy feeling of indecisiveness has now turned into I'm confident that there's nothing else I'm supposed to be doing. But it was because I was open to the possibilities and indulged myself in the offerings that UF offered to me, for me. But yeah, I, I didn't set out to say I want to be a coach, I want to be a consultant or, you know, whatever. Um, I just stuck with what I enjoyed. And then I realized, oh, you can actually have a career doing these things, which seemed unimaginable to me. But when I realized that, okay, this is something I can monetize and build for myself, that's when I realized, you know, this is what I want to do and the way that I want to take my career. Could you kind of give me a sense of your client base and uh, how you help them achieve what it is that they're, they're looking for? Yeah, so I work with um, individuals and groups, teams. Most of the groups that I work with or individuals that I work with are, you know, about college age to mid thirties, but I work with people of all ages and anyone that thinks they can benefit from working with me. Um, you know, I'm happy to work with. So really our focus is to help them understand themselves, their skills, their abilities, what they can, the value that they can bring to the table. And in the best case scenario, that's always aligned with their interests and what they actually want to be doing. Sometimes we're good at things we don't want to do them. We're good at them, but we don't really like them. So helping them understand what those things are that they're good at, hopefully aligning them with something that they actually like, and then how to productively apply that to either a career or in the case of a college student, um, what they're involved in and their professional activities around campus. And the idea that when you understand yourself, you gain that self-awareness and you understand how to apply that in a productive way in a professional or personal setting that you can have exponential growth, exponential results, engagement, productivity, and then all of those things overall just contribute to happiness in your life overall. Um, and so it's, I really see my work as a domino effect to positive change in all areas of life. When you're working with, with college age students, are you kind of helping them determine their, their course or, you know, maybe what they focus their education on? Um, or are you helping them kind of dial in um, their decision-making process for what kind of career path they're going to uh, set out on? That part's more of a byproduct. What I work mostly with college students on is how to capitalize on what they're currently doing whether it's something they're involved in, they have a leadership position, how can they capitalize on what they're currently doing, take their likes and dislikes from that, and then say, now when I leave college, what do I want to do with this? 
if, do I want to do anything, you know, with this experience that I have or, you know, do something else similar. People that are older, it's more about, or people that have, you know, not old as an age, not old as in you're an old person, <laughs> but people that have had a career or are in a full-time job, even if they're only 22 or 23, with those people, it's more like, you know, how can I switch careers or how can I do something different? Because those college student haven't college students haven't yet had a full-time job. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that's kind of the difference in the, the groups. And, and I, I mentioned, I think I mentioned your experience in, uh, I, I don't remember the name of the company that you worked for where you were uh, developing resumes, but is that something that you do now uh, as part of your, your business as you help people write their resumes? I do do resumes now. Um, I didn't specifically work for another company doing it. I have a couple of partners that I contract with to help them write resumes as well. In addition to my own clients doing resumes and that, that is on my, that is on my LinkedIn. So you might've seen it there. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm really passionate about the interpersonal development, helping people develop themselves, like everything that I just described. And then another piece of that is how do you put that on paper and how do you articulate that to someone else, whether it's a promotion you're looking for, um, again, switching to another company, you're switching to another career altogether and illustrating the ways that your experience can be leveraged as opposed to a detriment to your future. Um, so I do a lot of kind of a lot of different things when you when you examine down the line of what specific tasks or services do I offer. There's a lot of different ways that we can go with it, including the resume writing. But like I said, really at the whole, I want to help people know themselves, articulating that to others, and then putting that into action. Um, that's kind of the my guiding star for the ways that all of this work falls under. So you have this uh, leadership development coaching firm and you're, you're working with clients, help them align their passion with, you know, their career and helping them develop. I'm, I'm guessing helping them develop their, their leadership abilities looking at your your current list of clients is it more male than female or more female than male is the bulk of your clients are they uh you know in their 20s or 30s like i'm trying to get a like a demographic in my head to kind of aim my questions I would say for the most part, it's pretty 50-50. Some of the college organizations that I work with are Greek organizations. So in which case, um, you know, those would be either all men or all women just because of the nature of the, if I'm working with an organization. But I would say in general, the spread is pretty 50-50. Although something interesting that I hadn't realized before this conversation is that um, one of my biggest coaching packages is a long-term, you know, multi-month coaching package to switch careers, transition, you know, into a new one. And I've had just three people that have been in this multi-month package and they're all men. And I don't know if that's just a coincidence. Three isn't a very large sample size, but, um, but yeah, that my, my biggest package is, has only been men that I've worked with on that. And all in their all men in their twenties. 
And what, um, what is the focus? What have you found they want to focus on primarily? This, this is also, now I'm just, you know, I'm being very candid. I'm kind of thinking out loud here. Most of, or yeah, all three of them have wanted to either knew they didn't like what they were currently doing, didn't see growth in it, and were very willing to welcome with open arms a career totally different from what they currently were in. And the reason that that's interesting to me, uh, and this is something I think we mentioned um, in our previous conversation, you and I, is that men are more willing to apply to a job if they only meet about 60% of the requirements, they'll apply. Women, this is, this, yeah, this, we, well, you said, yeah, women feel like you need to be overqualified. Women feel, and then this was a, this was a, a real study. I don't remember who did it. Um, women will only apply if they meet 100% of the requirements. So men will apply at 60, women will meet, or I'm sorry, men apply at 60, women apply at 100%. So I think, you know, and again, I'm just thinking very candidly right now, because I've truly never thought about this before. Maybe men, because they are more willing to try something totally different, maybe than women are, um, they're also willing to seek out the help that, you know, of a coach, aka me, that goes along with that career change. But I think maybe at the, at the core, they believe in themselves more that they can do it you know, naturally than maybe a woman would. Um, yeah. So again, I, that's on the spot, but. Well, and, and I think there's some validity to that. Uh, well, obviously, because there is actual statistics from research that's been done, but when you dig in a little bit deeper as to why that is the case, I, I think, you know, as a culture, we tend to, you know, and I, I know that I did this with my daughter when she was very young and, and it wasn't until it was pointed out to me that, you know, I was very, uh, I would, I would coddle her or, you know, if she was about to do something that she might hurt herself doing, I would be like, Oh, hold on a second, you know, or here, let me help you with that or whatever which then kind of, I, I think what you see is with that kind of early development, you'll have women that will avoid risk more mm -hmm. than boys will. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I, I initially thought, well, no, it's just because girls are smarter than boys, but <laughs> it's later on in life, the, the risk aversion um, can be limiting. I, I've had to be more aware of how um, I, I approach things with my daughter because mm -hmm. uh, I don't want her to have this this mindset that she has to be risk averse. Um, mm -hmm. I want her to feel empowered and not be afraid to take risks, especially if they're calculated risks. And you mm -hmm. know, I mean, I want her to have confidence in her abilities. Mm -hmm. so. 
That's really interesting you bring that up. Have you heard of, um, and I, I don't want to butcher her name, I think the way you pronounce it is Reshma Sojani. Have you, have you heard of her? Or mm. she, so she, um, I, I heard her speak at a women's conference in October of 2019. Um, so I'm kind of pulling this information from back then, so it might slightly be inaccurate. But she, she wrote a book, which I actually have right here, and it's called Brave Not Perfect. I haven't read it, but she gave it out at the conference. And, you know, I hope to do read it one day, but um, that's her book. And she also founded, I think it's called Girl, not Women Who Code, Girls, I think it's called Girls Who Code, teaching girls how to code. I think, you know, mostly younger high school age girls are younger. I don't totally know her demographic, but, but anyway, at the conference, she spoke about a lot of the principles that she says she wrote about in the book, which is exactly what you just said. When boys are raised or, you know, when parents are raising a little boy and he falls off the monkey bars at the playground and scrapes his knee, they say, oh, you're fine. You know, oh, you're okay. Get up. But when it happens to maybe their daughter, a little girl, they say, oh, are you okay? Do you need a Band-Aid? And the treatment is very different. And I even find myself even if I have a friend or, you know, if I'm listening to someone speak and they say my boss or my doctor, and I immediately think of a man and I'm a little, I don't want to say embarrassed to say that because I'm a woman and I should not be defaulting to man, but, you know, we just have these unconscious programming, if you will, I guess we'll call it of associations you have with certain words or, you know, just these associations in our head. And, um, I didn't ever stop to think about the way boys versus girls are treated as children, as toddlers, as babies, and how that's shaping everything you just said, the way that they look at risks. Um, another one of the things she said was boys have to ask the girl out in high school. They have to ask the girl to the dance. So boys are already more familiar with rejection and being turned away. So is that same rejection carried on to not being phased by rejecting, being rejected from a company and these things later in life. Um, so I'm sure she has a lot more interesting claims in the book regarding those things, but um, I, I thought it was really interesting you brought that up because um, it's something I only stopped to think about recently after I heard her speak. What's the name of that book again? It's called Brave, Not Perfect. And I don't, I don't necessarily think brave and perfect are opposites, um, you know, or that you can contrast being brave with perfect and vice versa. But I do think there's, you know, a lot of, a lot to think about with the, the principles. Yeah, brave, not perfect. Reshma Sojani. And I might be saying that totally wrong. So I apologize if I did. Um, she was awesome. She was really cool to hear, um, you know, speak in person. In your professional career, the, the clients that you have, have you seen where, or can you outline some examples of obstacles that women face professionally that, that men don't actually have to face? And how do you coach them through those obstacles? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'll start by saying, most people's career problems are personal problems showing up as a career problem. 
Um, so of course, sometimes the problem is, you know, a toxic company, a toxic manager, work environment, things like that. But I would say probably at least 75% of the time when people come to me and say, this is my problem, it's usually a personal problem, whether it's a lack of confidence, um, someone else told them they can't, um, there's no money in what they think there's no money in what they want to do, you know, all these reasons why they can't. So I would say in, in general, I do have more women that lack confidence in what they want to do and in feeling fully empowered, whether it's they feel insecure about their experience, they think they're not qualified enough. Um, usually the clients that I have that do have more reservations with their career future are women, um, you know, and the, the specific examples or reasons are of course different from each person just based on their specific backgrounds. But when, you know, when it comes down to the common denominator, it's usually that for some reason they think they're not qualified enough or they don't have the confidence. Um, or they just ask me for validation um, or need permission, feel like they need permission. How do you address these uh, concerns that, that your clients have? Um, do you work with them on maybe getting those qualifications or is it, if it's a, a personal like mindset, how do you coach them into a better mindset? Yeah, it's it's um, the, the ability to, or the, I guess the, deg the degree to which I can change their mind, quote unquote, or help them to not think so narrowly is dependent on, and I don't want to say it's solely dependent on this, but it, it of course varies based upon my working relationship with them, how many times we can chat, things like that. So the people that I can have a longer term relationship with, I believe we can make a much more impactful change in terms of that mindset, because it's going to take more than, you know, everyone's been to one of those motivational talks where they're really pumped for a day or maybe a couple of days, maybe even a week. And then all of a sudden they revert to their back, their old habits. Um, and I'm not, you know, saying that I'm a motivational speaker because I would, you know, like to think that I can be more um, impactful long-term giving them tangible solutions rather than, you know, just speaking so with the mindset shifts, definitely takes a couple times meeting together, the longer, the better for a more, you know, long-term change there. Um, but in the moment when it's something that I know I have to address quickly, I will try to give them the permission they feel like they need. And of course, they don't tell me that. That's my observation based on their body language, behavior, you know, et cetera, is that a lot of people just need permission because they think they can't. So they need someone else to validate them. Um, in other cases, like you said, do I help them get qualified or what? Usually they are qualified. We're at least 80% qualified, which is totally enough. Um, one of my, one of the one women that I sometimes work with on projects, her name is Alexa Schoen. Schoen. It's, it's S-H-O-E as in chew with an N at the end. She's fantastic. Um, she's huge on TikTok. Um, so if anyone wants to look her up, she's, she's awesome. But um, she says a job description or a job posting is basically a company saying, okay, we, we think our ideal candidate has five years of this, 10 years of this, knows this software, 
um, has worked with international team, you know, she said that that's just their best guess at the type of person they want to hire. It's not a be all end all, but people look at it as if I have to a hundred or, you know, woman, some men too, I have to meet every single one of these. So to give you an example, I actually have a, a guy that I'm coaching and um, he said, okay, this is the job I want to apply for. He sent me the exact job posting. This is it. And then I said, okay, tell me, tell me the areas where you feel you best are a strong match for this job. Okay, these are the things. Okay, are there areas where you feel that you um, might not meet the requirements? Okay, well, here it says you have to have 20 years of X, Y, and Z experience. And I have 20 years of X and Y, but Z, I only have, I only have 10 years of that. And I said, if it wants 20 years of X, Y, and Z, you have 20 years of X of Y, 10 years of Z. I said, come on. I said, that's just, I said, that's fine. You totally meet that requirement. I said, you don't have to take it so quite literally. Um, you know, again, it's your, it's a company's best guess. And as long as you as a candidate can address, and this is something that they don't have at all, not something that they partially have. So let's say they say, oh, I want you to be qualified or certified in this tool or this programming language. You address it up front and say, while I am not yet certified in X, I am eager to learn and become certified in X. So you're addressing up front, hey, I know I fall short here, but I want to learn and I want to do better and I want to, you know, fulfill all the requirements. Um, so it's okay to be up front and it's also okay to not meet all the requirements. Just advocate for yourself in areas where you, um, where you do and leverage that. It's a bit long-winded, but as you can tell, I get excited about this. <laughs> well, no, I, um, see, I was not aware of that. I, I you know, I spent my entire professional career in the fire service and it was very like, you have to meet these requirements before even applying for the position. So in my mind, outside of the fire service, that's how everything is. So you just enlightened me to <laughs> that. So yeah, <laughs> thank you. And I'm sure you've enlightened a lot of other people just in this one uh, conversation. I hope so. I hope everyone's out there applying to the jobs that, you know, they've dreamed of and haven't felt like they could. When you, when you take into account just your professional career, because I'm sure uh, in school and, and prior to college, there's a lot of things that you're, you're probably proud of, accomplishments and things like that. But in your professional career, mm -hmm. is there any client, are there any clients that stand out or any personal accomplishments that you're particularly proud of that I, I'm just kind of picking your brain here. See. Yeah. Um, there's a couple that I can share. Um, so this was through Churchill Leadership Group through my work with them as kind of um, like in a, like a support, like a coach support role. So, you know, I really want to get into doing big corporate contracts, um, like employee engagement 
organizational culture, you know, organizational development, working with corporate organizations at a large scale. Um, so right now I'm, you know, working with coaches that are already doing that to, you know, kind of learn from them and, and eventually, you know, move more into that myself. So I worked through Churchill with another coach on a project for a 750 person organization with a specific department of about 200, maybe a little over 200 people in this specific department where employee engagement was low. And, you know, we identified a number of factors that were contributing to that low engagement. One of those factors was um, salary. And my job, my role on this job was to, you know, we, we talked with all 200 employees. My role was to collect the data, the qualitative data and create findings from that data. Um, and salary was one of those items and say, okay, you know, based on the data we have, what, what, what of these elements leading to low engagement are the most indicative of the low engagement? And like I said, salary was one of those most greatly contributing to the low engagement. And, um, you know, of course, as an outsider, um, you know, we're not the ones in the organization day to day making that change, but to be outsiders and to facilitate that change um, and to, you know, speak with these people of different departments and say, this is why engagement is important. You know, here's some things you can do to increase engagement. Um, and the, one of the results of the salary was, I believe they increased salary for, I think it was, I want to say 66% of the people in the department and people got as high as a 33% raise because they were highly underpaid. And to see previously the energy, the look on their faces about how much they cared about the work that they did and just totally felt extremely under undervalued. Um, like I said, largely due to their salary because it was so under market wage. And then to see how happy they were after, you know, we worked their organization to enact this change. And then they, they were, you know, just so grateful. And it hasn't been long enough to see the engagement, a change in engagement, because this has just happened over the past few months. But that was one of the most heartwarming things for me in my professional career. You know, although I didn't single-handedly, you know, make that change myself to be part of the team that made that change that bettered the lives of literally hundreds of people. Um, so that was a very proud thing. Another one was working with a one-on-one -on -one client that um, he, again, felt very undervalued, largely due to salary. This is a trend. I honestly haven't <laughs> thought about this until now, but, you know, similar situation, just an individual um, had a really deep passion for his industry, but felt it was dying off, um, becoming antiquated, that he wouldn't be able to find another position in this, you know, area that he loves. Um, but, you know, after working together, he was able to, you know, I worked them on his LinkedIn, on his resume, his cover letter, we did coaching, we used the Strengths Finder tool in our coaching. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's a, it's a personality-ish, it's not, it's not a personality assessment, but that's the easiest thing to compare it to. Um, 
And so he was able to get a new job, increase his salary by, I think it was also 66%. Um, and I checked in with him the other day, this was a few months ago, and he said he's loving it and he's had so many awesome opportunities. And he said, um, this wouldn't have been possible had I not worked with you. Um, and so again, coaching isn't, I mean, you know this as a coach, it's, it's not about doing the work for them, but empowering them to do the work for themselves. Um, and so, especially when I have, especially, you know, when I myself feel like, oh, well, I didn't do that much, you know, I just helped them as a coach. I just helped them, but they did the work, but to hear someone come back and say, without you, my life would have been different or without you, I don't think I would have been able to get here. That warms my heart so much and just makes me more fired up about, you know, wanting to do the same thing, you know, a million times over for new clients. Prior to recording, we were talking about, um, you know, women and our culture and uh, maybe in past generations where women's contributions weren't valued as much. Um, and you were talking about some of your experiences where maybe you didn't quite feel that way and that you're hopeful that in the next couple of decades that maybe um, the, the value in organizations or the, that organizations place on women and their contributions will match your experiences. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? When I was in college, a lot of my experience or my college experience involvement was pretty much split through Greek life and the business school. And in Greek life, it was all women run. So, you know, there was no chance to be thought about differently from a man because it was all women. But with my business school involvement, I did not ever feel that I was looked at differently or that any of us thought of each other differently based on being a man or a woman. And the thought of different treatment amongst, you know, each other didn't even cross my mind until kind of coming into the professional working world and seeing all the discussion that there is around gender and leadership opportunities. Um, and, you know, who, you know, who is holding these positions? Because I know that, uh, I forget the, the number, but such as really, I think it's 10 or less of the Fortune 500 CEOs are, are female. I think, yeah, I think around 10 out of the 500 are female. And so you can obviously see that stark contrast there that that's obviously not a representation of the population of people at work in these companies. Um, you know, however, as a college student, especially in elected positions, in the business school as a leader running against men, being elected over men as a woman, I didn't see it as that. I saw it as they thought I was the better candidate. I didn't see it as, oh, I'm surprised they picked me because I'm a girl and you know the other dude's a dude, right? So um, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I do truly feel that 
my, you know, my age, my experience, and seeing that I think everyone felt the same I did about gender and who's in these leadership positions in college, I do think that in the coming decades, um, those same perspectives will play out into the, you know, professional working world and the organizational hierarchies of these huge corporations, and that we will start to see that change coming to fruition at the top of the ladder. And, you know, like I said, in a few decades. Um, so I don't know if, if every other, you know, woman or, you know, at every college, if it's the same, I'm sure different parts of the country, you know, might have differing views on that as well. But I, I do feel strongly confident in saying, I don't think, at least with my age group, I don't want to say generation, but with my age group, I don't think people see that as a problem or as a reason to think of someone differently. And so I hope that we can see permanent change in that. So you have a client come to you, um, a, a woman that is facing a, a culture that doesn't value her contribution the same that they uh, value uh, the men in the organization. How would you approach that? Um, you know, how would you coach her in, in overcoming that? I believe that if there's a will, there's a way with anything. But I also believe that sometimes the way, the way, you have to determine if it's worth pursuing based on how difficult it may be to attain, how much effort you're willing to put in, and knowing where your boundary is in doing all of that. So I would never want to tell someone to take the easy way out by just getting a different job at a different company where that's not a problem. However, if that belief is so embedded in the culture of that organization to the extent to where your efforts for advocating for yourself and for other women will not move the ticker. That's the term, right? I think so. Move the ticker. Um, then I think you also need to be realistic about how you go about pursuing your own path because people that are and this goes for anything people that are so embedded and so set in certain beliefs no matter what you do you're not going to change what they think and especially if those people are decision makers over your professional life certainly try and stand up for yourself but know when you need to walk away, pursue something else, or leave the situation altogether. So if I was coaching someone, I would, you know, def in the situation you described, I would definitely, you know, tell her all of that. And then, of course, dig more into whatever her specific um, constraints um, and the, you know, additional details about her situation in order to help her create a plan that I think is realistic, you know, would realistically move her towards her goal. The reason that I, I'm posing this line of questions is, you know, again, in, in my professional career in, in the fire service, I saw women 
treated differently than men and valued differently and dismissed simply because of their gender. Um, and, you know, if, like if you, one of the things that I would see most frequent is if you take a, a male firefighter and a female firefighter, they got hired at the same time, they've got the same amount of time on the job at the same station, running the same calls. The man makes a mistake, they do training to correct it. The woman makes a mistake and it's like, oh, see? Freaking mm -hmm. women, clearly they mm -hmm. don't belong. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it's an almost an automatic, like see? Mm -hmm. and, and I can't tell you how many times I had to sit down and have conversations either with the, the men or just with the whole crew and like, go, you, you gotta like get out of this mindset because if that, if, if she was a man, what would your next steps be? You would address it and correct it. But, I, and it's not just that, I think there's, there's multiple factors that go into play with, with that kind of behavior. One, I think that men in leadership positions and male-dominated organizations, they have a mindset of like, well, this is how I would correct it if it was a man. And sometimes that's a little harsh, how men approach other men that have made a mistake. Um, and they don't feel comfortable addressing a woman in the same way. Um, and for good reason, because it's inappropriate, you know, to address anybody in, in those ways. And that's when you evaluate leaders and their abilities and how they're viewed from the people that they're leading, being able to talk to somebody when they've made a mistake and work with them to get them to uh, operate at a much higher level, addressing them in a harsh way is not going to get the results mm -hmm. that you want. Mm -hmm. um, it might correct it right then, but that person is going to remember how you spoke to them and they're going to be like, you know, you're, you're kind of an asshole, mm -hmm. but, you know? So mm -hmm. I think it's a, it's a leadership issue, one, mm -hmm. but it's also kind of a, well, it's a misogynistic attitude to automatically default that to the, mm -hmm. well, she screwed up because she's a woman, mm -hmm. you know? And, and when you look at this and you look at the, the history of women in the fire service, just to take one occupation and you look at the United States uh, fire service, it's not until recently that the, like within the last five, 10 years that the percentage of women in the fire service has actually gone above 
4%. And like, if you look at other male dominated occupations where there, if you look at what's involved, like the training, the education, the physicality of the job, the, you know, the danger or whatever that's involved, you know, if you look at law enforcement, military, uh, even like iron workers is included in this, the percentage of women is somewhere around 17%. Okay. And the fire service up until like, I think the last census was like 4.7%. So it would have been 2020. So the previous was 2010 and it was three point. I think it was 3.4 or 3.5% was women. So it's only gone up mm-hmm. like 1%. And mm-hmm. over 10 years, that's just mm-hmm. asinine. Uh, mm-hmm. and, yeah. and, and I think that's attributed to culture, not, mm-hmm. uh, and, and I, I know that you probably would see this just in any occupation, but when a person does not feel valued, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. why would they stick around? Right. Right. Yeah. That's, that's what I, in both the examples of the clients that I gave the organization, the single client, they, you know, all both said they felt undervalued and underappreciated. Um, salary is one of the ways I believe that that underappreciation can come out, but it's also, like you said, the way you're spoken to, um, the way that you're treated and so many other factors. Um, but you know, there's so many stigmas around money. And I think that, um, for a lot of people, that's one of the first things that they, that they think of, but yes, in any profession, um, and my mom as an optometrist and a you know, she owns her practice. And I try to tell her that all the time. I'm not saying she doesn't value her employees, but I'm saying I tried to teach her about what strong organizations look like because she didn't go to business school. She went to optometry school. So these people in these professions are running businesses, um, but never learned about business. Um, And again, I'm not saying she's you know, bad at it. I'm just, she'll ask me a question about something and I'll say, oh, well, that is related to this principle or this principle. And here's some things that you could think about and find ways to implement. And she's like, oh, wow. I didn't, you know, it's just, it's such an unknown world. And, you know, even a few decades ago, you know, people didn't, people, I don't want people didn't care about making people feel valued, but they would say, I'm, you know, as, as your, this is a job, you know, it's like, you're not coming here to have me pat you on the back and say, good job. And that's obviously not what this is about at all. Um, but even these conversations that you and I are having right now, were never even a thought a couple of decades ago. So especially for people in roles that are leaders running companies that are not just simply not educated because they, it was never an important thing to be educated on. And now there's so much coming to, you know, the forefront about, yes, this is important. Everyone needs to know this. Everyone needs to do this, despite your industry, despite what you learned, despite what the norm was 
30 years ago and things like that. So I kind of want to dig a little bit more into like your personal leadership philosophy and maybe some of your influences that kind of helped you develop this mindset or philosophy and and how you apply that to your personal business. Let's start with the first, I guess, big leadership position that I had was in college on my executive board. I was a sophomore. Um, So the positions run calendar year, not academic year. So it started when I was a sophomore through my junior year. Um, I didn't lead anyone. I kind of had an assistant sort of. I had a, a support person. I didn't really lead anyone. I was really just serving the sorority, the organization with my other fellow executive board members. That was when I was really opened up to what is it like to work with people on a team? And we had 18 people, which is a lot for a sorority executive board, 18 people. That was when I learned what it was really like to work with other people, serving a group, but when everyone thinks their sector is you know, more important than someone else's or their thing should take priority or their idea should be prioritized. And then half the stuff everyone says they do doesn't ever happen. And that would piss me off so much. And then seeing a lack of accountability Um, from other people that should have been helping hold them accountable. That just made me mad too. (laughs) So that was a big eye-opening and learning experience about, you know, now looking at it more maturely, why do we not do what we say? Why do we not hold ourselves accountable? Why do our leaders that are supposed to be holding us accountable, not doing that? Um, Why are things not getting done? You know, what are the obstacles getting in the way of all these things? Um, and it really comes down to, you know, interpersonal dynamics. And so, you know, the rest of my college career and the other leadership positions I held, I had a clear idea of what I was getting into, what to look out for and how to be the leader that I, you know, needed in that time. Um, so after a lot of kind of reflecting, um, one of my biggest influences is Gary Vaynerchuk. How do you know who he is? Okay, a lot of people don't like him. Um, He's an acquired taste, but (laughs) so many important principles about business and how to treat people I learned from him. And especially about, and this is kind of what I mentioned in the beginning, starting with your own self-awareness and how you treat people, how you treat yourself and how you view everything going on around you. If you don't first have a good grasp on that, the other things are going to be much, much more difficult to successfully harness and execute on. So that was really where I think I got my foundation on how to be a leader, how to recognize a good leader and pick out specifically, oh, they lack psychological safety or, oh, they're, you know, maybe insecure or, oh, they don't have confidence or, you know, and then of course the positive things, oh, this person is exhibiting emotional intelligence. Um, You know, they have, conversational intelligence, you know, whatever, both sides of the coin. Um, 
And so that's how I kind of helped develop myself, know what to look for, and then how to, you know, pour those things into this new age of leaders, especially through my own experience when working with college students and saying, I know you're going to go through this because I went through this. So before we get there, let's stop. Um, let's see what we can do to talk through and to best prepare you to, you know, tackle these challenging situations with, with poise and with, well, tackle these things well. Well, you mentioned emotional intelligence, conversational intelligence, and let's start with the conversational intelligence, being self-aware and having the ability to read people. So having that empathy component is key to your conversational intelligence. So when you're, when you're speaking with somebody, when you're communicating with somebody, well, one, you, depending on the conversation that you're having, open-ended questions uh, will get more from the person. And being able to watch their body language and be aware of your own personal body language so that you're not putting the other person off. But being able to read them in a way so that you know that they're understanding what you're saying and what maybe what you're asking them. Uh, because sometimes, uh, and I'm sure, I mean, this is the case for everybody. We've all had times where we ask a question, but maybe our tone or the, the expression on our face says something to the other person that they're accusing me of something. And so automatically they're, they go on the defensive or maybe worse, they go on the offensive and they attack you, you know, verbally or whatever. And completely unintended, uh, you know, response when all you're trying to do is communicate and connect with that person. So um, being able to, well, there's the congruency component where when what you're saying and what you're like verbally and what your face and your body language is saying, they have to line up. And, and that is, that's why it's so important for you to be self-aware. Because if you lack that self-awareness, mm -hmm. you just kind of assume that they understand what you're saying. And, and a lot of times, follow-up questions are very important so that you can verify that they understand what the question is or what it is that you were telling them or describing them, describing to them. That's a huge component of emotional intelligence is that ability to communicate. And like when I'm teaching leadership, that I, I teach communication as the foundation of good leadership. You know, you can't develop a team if you mm -hmm. suck at mm -hmm. communicating. So, mm -hmm. and you have to know your audience. You know, mm -hmm. you, you have to know those people and you can't get to know somebody uh, well enough if you lack the ability to communicate. And mm -hmm. a huge part of effective communication is listening. Right. And so that... Um, That is my understanding of, uh, you know, conversational intelligence. Um, mm -hmm. 
Does that sound, does it sound good? Definitely, definitely. No, communication is when I work with, you know, when I work with groups, or, yeah, I guess I should say teams, that's always where I start is with communication and, you know, in whatever way makes sense to them. But that actually also reminds me of, um, I recently went through, are you familiar with NLP certification? Neuro-linguistic? Programming. Yeah. Okay. So they just had a certification or a training, I should say, because I haven't gotten certified yet. I just did the training here in Tampa a couple in January. And one of the pieces, one of the exercises that we did was we went over different generalizations of conversation that, that you can have. So I'm, I generalize, you know, we all do it, generalize things based on what we're hearing when it might not be true. So one of them is called distortions. And this was one of the ones we, when we did an exercise with our peers, was particularly difficult for us to pinpoint. So they would give us, they would give us a sentence and then give us four um, presuppositions and said, which are, you know, which are presuppositions and which are not presuppositions. So meaning what, what information can we say for sure is true based on the original sentence and what would be a distortion, meaning something that may or may not, an, an assumption that may or may not be true. I think I explained that properly. So I think one of the examples was um, something like, she, she wants to go somewhere because all her friends are going, something like that. And so one of them was, or I think this is, I think it was something along the lines of saying she likes whatever that thing is. So she wants to go because her friends are going is the thing and saying she likes that thing. That's a distortion. We can't say that for, tr for, for sure. We can't say she likes it. We're just, they're just saying she wants to do this thing because her friends are doing it. So maybe she does like it, but maybe she just is seeking inclusion and doesn't actually like this thing, but she wants to go because she wants to be part of the group. So saying she likes it is a wrongful assumption, which they call a distortion in NLP terms. And the reason I bring that up is because we make, and after I learned that, I make distortions every single day. You know, I assume that I said this or my behavior or my action was this. So I'm assuming, oh, this person thinks this of me because of that. All of us make distortions all the time because we jump to a conclusion about, oh, I gave this presentation and this person checked their phone. So they, they think I did a terrible job, right? That's just one example. But I think with communication comes a lot of those distortions. And we just assume things that we think are true because we're reading these cues. But really, you can't, you know, whether you and I were to give the same cue to another person, a body, whether it's body language or, you know, whatever, it could be totally different things for both of us. Um, and so, like you said, you said communication in all aspects, whether it's verbally, whether it's an assumption you're making your body language, you know, the way your facial recognition aligns or doesn't align with what you're saying. Um, and I, you know, there's so many conclusions we just jump to without really thinking about it, without realizing we're making assumptions. Um, and so I, I think that's where a lot of things go wrong with leadership dynamics, team dynamics, you know, 
even, you know, vertical chains of command, especially because we hear one thing and take it as another without asking open questions for clarification and kind of doing the homework to really understand what that person is trying to say. Um, so, you know, there's a lot to unpack there, but definitely agree a, with everything you said. No, you made a, a, an excellent point with those those cognitive distortions or those assumptions that people make as leaders, we have to be very aware that that is a probability when we're communicating with somebody that they're going to take what we say in a way that's very different than what we're, what we intend. So you have to follow up and not only follow up with additional questions or to verify that they understand exactly what you're saying. But if you say you're going to do something, your actions need to align with mm -hmm. what you say you're going to do. Mm -hmm. And there has to be consistency. Mm -hmm. you know, you, uh, that's one thing that I think a lot of leaders get wrong is that mm -hmm. you know, may, they might allude that, yeah, you know, if I'm able to do that, I'll, I'll make that happen. Well, the person that they're talking to about that may hear, I'm going to make that happen. And if you don't deliver on mm -hmm. it, mm -hmm. they're going to go, oh, they suck as a leader. Right. You know, I can't right. trust them. Right. So we have to be very clear in our communication, even if what we have to say is going to be viewed as negative the person mm -hmm. we're talking to mm -hmm. honesty is always the best policy exactly and it's it's all about the delivery you know yeah. you can you can deliver any type of news um respectfully which will you know of course the way that someone feels is about about far more than the message it's about the delivery plus the message um and the intent behind, you know, what is the speaker's intent on how they want it to come across and how they, you know, ultimately want to make that person feel um, on the other end. Before we close, because like I try in most episodes to kind of give a little leadership nugget and give the guest an opportunity to do the same. And um, because we're talking about this, uh, one of the things that um, I'd like to leave the listeners with when we're in a leadership position, um, what you just said, you know, about it's really more important how you leave that person feeling than what the actual message is, you know, uh, because it can be something negative, like, you know, they may have asked for a piece of equipment and previously you said, oh yeah, we're going to make that happen. And then come to find out you don't have the budget to actually acquire that piece of equipment which means you know, another year is gonna go by that they're gonna to have to use the old piece of equipment and maybe it's just like inefficient or it creates a lot more work for that person, whatever the case may be, it's just not ideal. But you don't have the money, so 
you got to let them know that you can't do that. And it doesn't mean that you don't value them or their mm -hmm. contribution. But if you just go, sorry, man, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to get that piece of equipment rather than, Hey, mm -hmm. you know, I really, really thought that we were going to be able to get that piece of equipment and um, I'm going to have it on the list to like, try and get that in the budget for next year. Mm -hmm. um, and it's going to be my priority. But right now I just, you know, I really don't want you to take this the wrong way. I thought we had the money. We're, we're going to work very hard at making sure we get that piece of equipment. We know that it would make your life easier. And we want, you know, we want you to be happy uh, with what you're doing, because we don't want you going anywhere. We value you and the work that you're putting out. So Mm -hmm. you know, trying to make sure that they feel valued, even though you can't give them what they asked for. Mm -hmm. Well, when, um, when I was in the fire service, one of the things that uh, was tough, because everybody makes mistakes, right? You know, mm -hmm. and when someone makes a mistake, as the leader, you've got to correct that behavior. And a lot of times you're held to a, a certain level and certain actions require actions by the leader, whether it's, uh, you know, a written reprimand or some form of disciplinary action. If it's policy, you're required to do that, but there's a way that you can do that and they still feel valued. So mm -hmm. um, you have to, hold a person accountable, which is important for the entire team, mm -hmm. you know, because if somebody doesn't perform up to the level or, you know, whatever uh, expectations that you've set for the team and you're holding everybody else accountable and you fail to hold this person accountable for whatever reason, you know, it, it just, you lose credibility and the idea is that when you hold somebody accountable, it's really to raise the, the performance of the team. Um, and okay. the way that I explain this to, um, I, I used to teach in the officer's academy and the, the way that I ask them to approach it when they're uh, working with the crew that they would eventually get is if, you're, if, you're, if your child makes a mistake, you want them to uh, avoid making that mistake in the future. Not that you know, adults or children, but the idea is, is that you care about them. You have to legitimately care about your people mm -hmm. and, and really sincerely want them to be successful. Mm -hmm. And so when, you know, you're, you're working or operating within a set of policies and there are expectations, you have to follow those policies, but there's a way that you can do it and there can be a lesson for everybody. 
And so, right. so what I'm trying to give the listeners here is this mindset that you should have when you're approaching leadership is that really the only way that you can consider yourself to be successful as a leader is by looking at whether or not your team is successful. And that's mm -hmm. the only way that you can measure effective leadership is mm -hmm. the success of the team. Exactly. Yeah, a leader's, you know, job is to support a team and to lead the team to success and provide them with the tools and resources necessary to do that in a way that you just described. And to add to that a little bit with the, you know, the example of the equipment and saying, rather than just saying no, saying, I'm going to advocate for you in the future. But I think in addition to that, what's helpful is to say, this is why we weren't able to make it possible this time around. You know, maybe something else for the entire team was more important and that's what the funding was allocated to. Because um, I find that also when, when people know the why, and especially if it's directed at the betterment of the group as a whole, when this one example might've been something for that individual, then people, you know, when it's a team with a good culture where people trust each other and value, you know, your, your brother and your sister, um, then they'll say, oh, okay, you know, I'm glad that we were able to, to do this for the group because I, I want to make sure that the needs of the group are met, even if that comes before, you know, something that I specifically, you know, want. Um, and of course that's circumstantial, but, but the why, the why is important as well, I think, in, in understanding decisions. Well, it's all about how you leave them feeling. Exactly. I'll have a link to your website in the show notes, but just for the listeners, if anybody wants to get in contact with you or to follow you on social media, what's the best way to connect with you? Of course. The best way is my email, which is Elena at elenapastory.com. My LinkedIn, I'm very active on as well, which is linkedin.com slash in slash Elena Pastore, just, you know, all together one word. And I did just recently make a company Instagram. So I'm hoping to have some nice value and words of wisdom, words of wisdom and tangible pieces of advice that you can apply to your own life. And that is at Elena Torre coaching Instagram. And so, your LinkedIn, available. your LinkedIn and your Instagram uh, accounts are actually, you have links on your website, right? I do. Yes. I, I have a company LinkedIn page as well, but that, uh, you know, if you want to connect with me as a human, <laughs> that's why okay. I gave my personal, uh, my, my LinkedIn. Okay. Well, I will have those links in, uh, in the show notes at the, at the bottom of the page. So, um, you know, anybody out there listening wants to connect with Elena, uh, please do so. And, yeah. uh, you know, I, I wish you all the luck and I, and I'm really, really happy that we got this chance to connect and talk and think uh, the listeners are going to get a lot out of this conversation. I hope so too. Thanks everyone for listening. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please like and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Follow me on your favorite podcast platform and visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. My goal is and always will be to add value to as many people as possible. So if I can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts linked on the homepage of my website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them, and the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.